millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You are listening to Close Reads and I'm David Kern here with Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Angelina and Tim, how's it going? Hey, it's David, going good. Great, great. So I'm actually sitting next to Angelina. She's in my makeshift closet studio right now. Your daughter had a sleepover nearby. Is that she the deal? She did. She had a slumber party. So here I am. Nice. So Angelina <laughs> is in the office in in the studio. We're gonna we're gonna go with studio. Well, studio right? This is totally a studio. Yeah. Okay. It yeah. has that. It's very... not an office. No. This. Is, I feel like I'm in PBS. Like we're just about to be like all things considered. Wait, that might be trademarked. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think you finished the word consider. Uh, Angelina, Tim, is this a little bit jarring for you? You can see it, this David. This is so unnerving. I mean, at home, I just imagine him like raising one eyebrow at me or giving me that David smirk. But now I have to see it. I'm like face to face with all this sarcasm. I can't take it. And when you're at home, you're probably like smoking a cigar with high heels up on the desk, That's relaxing. You- you know it. That's exactly what I look like every day. With my Sipping Dave Earl Grey tea. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't sip Earl Grey tea during your during the podcast. With my Dave, oh, of course. Well, I might have a little extra something, something, but you know. <laughs> yeah, herbal tea also. Herbal tea. I'm actually sipping herbal tea right now. So, um, Tim, how's it going with you in the great state of Oregon? Well, David. Um, I had a rough Sunday. If you recall, <laughs> if you recall, at the end of our last podcast, we mentioned that I would either be elated that my Atlanta Falcons had just won the Super Bowl, or I would be, you know, slightly depressed. I had little did never... we know there was a third option. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's exactly right. I wasn't a little depressed. You know, like when your sports team loses in a championship game. It generally lowers the spirits, but the means by which my local sports team lost, there has never been, I don't think it was a meltdown, but it was a catastrophic disaster, a first order disaster. You know, Tim, before the show started, David asked me if, if it was a good idea for us to bring this up. And, and I said, personally, I was just glad to find out that you were still alive because if ever there uh, was an opportunity for a ritual suicide after a great oh shame, my gosh. this was it. So I was watching with a bunch of friends of mine in Eugene, and there was only a couple of them that actually cared about the game. You know, none of them were really invested. They were either Seahawks fans or they just don't care that much about NFL football. But they were curious. You know, it's this slice of Americana that is the Super Bowl, and so they're watching the game with me. And, of course, when the Falcons were just tearing it up in the first half, they were so excited for me. And then the wheels start coming off the bus, and all of my friends are kind of looking at me like, how do we handle this with Tim? Like, do we give him space? Do we try to kind of cheer him up? Come on, Tiger, we can still do this together. 
and I remember when they when the Patriots scored in overtime, I just said, "I'm sorry, everyone. I just need to go into the backyard and break something now." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mild mannered Macintosh. Yes, I didn't want them to have to be exposed to that sort of knuckle walking violence. I, I needed to do it by myself. Yeah. So when I was, I want to say, eleven or twelve, the Packers were in the Super Bowl, and they lost to the Broncos. And it was in this. It was nothing like that. It was very. It was last second, last moment. It wasn't like they didn't have a huge lead and blow it. So, um. But I remember, you know, when you're 11 or 12, all of these things are kind of enhanced, right? Oh, yes. And, and it was like, I remember the next day, you, I felt like I was a zombie. and Because when you're young, those things matter extra much, right? Yes. Like, extra, extra much. And I remember um, walking around the neighborhood after school, just like, like it's, it's probably like the first real heartbreak I ever knew. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. 11 or 12 years old. And then uh, two years ago, um, I'm sure Alex is, Alex and I have probably both talked to you about this, when the Packers were in the NFC Championship game, and they're on the verge of the Super Bowl. So not in the Super Bowl, so not like what you dealt with. Right. But they're up by 16 with three minutes left. And Oh, were, I didn't know it was that bad, David. Yeah, and there were like uh, something like, well, they gave up a fake punt for a touchdown and then or that was with five minutes left or something and then the the other team scored and we got an interception we could have run it back for a touchdown but the guy decided to take a knee because he thought it was safer he probably could have scored then uh the the other team scored and then we they got an onside kick with a minute 48 left they recovered it and they recovered it because the guy who was supposed to be catching it his own player went for the ball and blocked it and didn't get it so then the other team got the ball and drove down and scored and tied it and then it went to and then they went for two and when they went for two the db could have intercepted that but he mistimed his jump so the ball went through his arm uh, so it was like every play was like the worst thing that got yes worse until overtime and it was the same deal you went through where once it went to overtime when the other team won the coin toss you just knew that your defense yeah. was tired and it wasn't going to do anything absolutely i knew that the game was over when Edelman made this catch, it was a miracle catch. Yeah, it was. The ball is like fluttering an inch above the ground, and he just snatches it off the ground. And I just thought at that point, whatever I have done, whatever metaphysical offense I have provided, <laughs> it is all now coming down on me. I'm somehow singularly responsible for what's happening. Yeah, through was, some sort was, of gross moral error, I guess. You should have worn the same socks for every game, Tim. Really? I should have. I was watching the game, Tim, and I was feeling for you that there's like that moment in the game where the momentum shifts, you know? And yes. So even though y'all were still up, I felt that shift, and I, I said out loud, oh, this is bad. This yes. is bad. The Patriots <laughs> yes. have the momentum. This is so bad. And I just want you to know, if I lived closer, I would have come over with Clue, and, and we would have just Thank played you. right through this heartbreak. Thank you. That would have that would have worked. We could have just Colonel Mustard our way right out of that. We could have with the knife. Well, you and mentioned... the candlestick <laughs> and the rope and the revolver. We could have been all like, "Who killed Tom Brady?" <laughs> right. <laughs> so when that happened to us, I think everybody in you know, like I got up and walked outside. Alex uh -huh. got up and walked upstairs. <laughs> ran over one. Of, ran, Ran over one of my kids in the way up on the stairwell. 
<laughs> it, yeah, it's funny how like sports in the grand scheme of things don't matter, but they also matter because they don't matter. If that makes sense, you know. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Like they're important because they don't matter in a way. Um, but anyway, we. As much um, as our fans, I'm sure, have appreciated the Super Bowl recap. Yeah. Well, we um, <laughs> we, we just steer it back to cricket matches. <laughs> All of us in the Close Reads universe mourn along with you and offer Thank our you. condolences. Thank you. It's Maybe, much appreciated. Where, where, is your, where are you psychologically, emotionally, five days later? Well, for two days, I seriously could not look or think. I couldn't like go online and like read anything about the game or anything like that. It was just way too sensitive. <laughs> yeah. um, but I've kind of recovered now. I just loved that team. You know, like, I just love that team. I loved them before the preseason began. I was like, man, I really like this team. I think, I think we might, we could go to the playoffs this year. Yeah. So I'm getting back in the saddle. Well, yeah. I'm thinking you must have your sense of humor back because I just noticed what you're calling yourself, what you've labeled yourself <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you should explain to the readers or to the listeners. Yes, yes I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at the screen and I'm seeing that his mic is labeled Lord Timmy Whimsy. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually, it's kind of cut off. It's abbreviated on the screen. Oh, no, it's Lord Timmy it. Whimsical. Oh, Lord Timmy Whimsical. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Nom de plume. I'm going to be looking for that. The sense of humor is back. It's, it's back. Well, speaking of sense of humor, I suppose we should, we should talk about the thing that we're here to talk about. Hey, I have – sorry, like I, I grabbed the mic and I'm just never going to let it go, I guess. Well, you know, it's, it's time for a Tim's on-air therapy session. It yeah. is. By all, by, I've, I've had a lot. Just go ahead. Let's work out your issues right here. By all means, run with it. By all, by all means, run with it. I think, I think something in our book, Murder Must Advertise, I think something started to occur to me during the chapters that we – Read, which we're almost exactly in the middle of the book now. And I wanted to float this idea past you guys. It made me think that this book is about, more than anything else, it's not really about the advertising industry. It's not really about discovering who done it. It's not really about exploring deep emotional depth within these different characters. I wonder if this book is starting to come into form as a book about the massive class difference between Lord Peter Whimsy and basically everybody else aside from his friends that is in the book. Have you guys started notice, noticing, like, this is, like, constantly this percolating idea that keeps coming up in various forms and various ways and various conversations all throughout you this see, book? You nah, see, you're you wrong. See, you see that as <laughs> You actually see that in a lot of the novels. Um, in fact, I was reading a contemporary review of, of her books and where one kind of like Marxist guy complained that she didn't do enough with the social class stuff and felt like she was just playing with it. Huh. So she's on the wrong side of a Marxist? Yes. So we love her. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe she we doesn't sh- despise his aristocracy. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't take that too much further. <laughs> <laughs> All the all the Marxist Circe listeners, yeah, exactly. All all you Marxist close read close readers, we don't want to you know step on your Marxist shoes. I'm gonna turn on my phone after this podcast and see that someone has started a second close reads Facebook group called Marxist Close Reads. Listeners. Yeah, exactly. Is it gonna be a parody group or a real one though? I'm really poor, so you can invite me to that group. 
It'd be called Das Close Reads, maybe. <laughs> oh, we could read a PG Woodhouse novel, you know, where Smith calls everybody comrade and he's rich. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Uh, can you go on with what you're saying? I mean, you're making, you say you think there's class stuff going on here, but what, what do you mean in particular? Well, so many of the conversations, especially the conversations that have it, Pim's advertising agency kind of um, addressed this awkward relationship that Peter has, or yeah, that Peter has with his colleagues. And he's constantly talking, with, not constantly, but he frequently remarks when he goes home that, you know, he feels good that he's actually having to work for a living. And then he goes back to work and they're making jokes about, oh, I, I wish I'd had your your education. What a you must have gone to Harrow or Eaton. You're a refined man. You're different than us. Yeah, the I, whole public I, public school debate. Yeah, and he kind of right. rages at that a little bit. He kind of rages at that a little bit? Against it. Like, he's fed up with hearing that. Oh, that's right. That's right. So I, it, I highlighted a section um, in which he kind of he, – he scolds them for making such a big deal of, the, of what, where he was educated. I think it was Chapter 16 – no, sorry, it must have been earlier than that. Um, anyway, it just keeps coming up, and I wonder if the whole cricket chapter is going to pay off during the cricket game with something about some class, con- not class conflict, that sounds Marxist, but some sort of class, I don't know. Well, let's just call it a class conflict of some sort. Well, you know, it, it's not Marxist, obviously, but she does. I think in a lot of the books, Lord Peter feels a little wasted as the second son, you know? So he's been given the education of a gentleman, but he can't be the duke, so he doesn't have that responsibilities in and, and life that comes with being a duke. But then being a gentleman, he can't work. So he has that this hobby of being a detective, and now, which it amused me so much, his undercover persona sort of becomes almost his real persona a couple of times, did you notice, in this section where he's, like, upset to be dragged out of the advertising to have to deal with the murder? Yes. Because oh, I, so- had enough, I had a thought about that also, Angelina. Go on. Well, I mean, you can go ahead and say it. That was pretty much all I was going to say, just that that was interesting to me, that he gets so immersed in the enjoyment of that labor that's almost like, oh, fine, Parker, I'll go talk about this murder. We'll go find out who did it, but I really got to finish this copy. Right, right. The whole thing about whiffling round Britain. He right. like really gets into the campaign, and he's been, or maybe the narrator has been so disdainful about advertising in general, and now we see Breeden kind of sliding into it, enjoying it, making the appeals. Yeah, I think that like there's been a sense of cynicism about advertising that's shown through. Even the advertisers mm-hmm. themselves are a little cynical about it, but also it seems like Sayers is presenting the world as somewhat intoxicating right like so for Braden, Braden, whatever he's intoxicated by the accomplishment by the creativity like even by the conversation so he gets caught up in in that as something more even than just cover and so yeah there's a cynicism about it but there's also a excitement about it that i think an appeal yeah there's an appeal that that kind of overwhelms the cynicism one Uh of our one of our listeners today wrote on the facebook group her name's laura um, and she wrote about 
what Dorothy Sayers had to say about advertising in her letters, which was really fascinating. Um, in particular, she did have, a, as we suspected, a lot of ambivalence about it and felt somewhat wasted uh, in using her massive creative powers in, in you know, the endeavor of consumerism. But on the other hand, um, the letters indicate that she really enjoyed the sort of problem-solving, puzzle-solving aspect of it. And I think we see that in that oh, scene where yeah. we're given this puzzle. How do we compete with this other campaign? And then Peter solves the puzzle, and, and he's so it almost is the same mentality of the detective thing, right? He's putting he's putting the pieces together, and it's getting bigger and bigger, and he's figuring it all out. Yeah, let's actually let's look at that scene where he, where he, I think it's what is that in sixteen? Is it sixteen? Because no. then he has the conversation with the boss, the boss man. I thought it might have been fifteen. Fifteen or sixteen. Oh, um, and just so you know, Tim, before the show started, David and I agreed we really want to go whiffling. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I I will give the cigarettes away and collect the coupons. <laughs> and of course, there's the part where they're trying to get the women to smoke seriously. Yes, yes right. Women, you need to stop playing around with these cigarettes. Take right. Take your smoking habit seriously, please. And I love in that conversation when Lord Peter says, "Won't we get to this point where we've saturated the market?" And their response is, "You're not supposed to ask that question." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe think of like every multi-level marketing conversation, and then uh -huh. you get six people, and then you get six people. But won't we run out of people? God no. People are born every day. <laughs> uh, advertising's been around since the twenties, and we have apparently not run out of a receptive audience. So. For me, it's um, page 256. It's chapter, a sudden decrease of a man. What chapter is that? That's, that's 15. 15. Yeah, so, but what's the, where is... Okay, halfway through that chapter, it switches back to the whifflet thing. Yeah, so there's this specific moment, though, where he gets excited about doing the work. And he has this kind of aha moment where he's kind of working through it. And it's sort of the same idea as what you're getting as he's trying, as he's trying to solve the crime. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. bit by bit, he's putting the pieces together until, you know, in theory anyway, there's going to be an aha moment where he solves the problem. And so you've got the... Oh, I found it. I found it. Mir we have mirroring these ideas. Just like we talked about last week, the advertising and the, and the, 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 the capering, the crime-solving the detective work are mirroring one another. Mm -hmm. And yes. really, in both cases, he's really not a detective, nor is he an advertiser. Right. He's playing a role in both of those. Really, what he is, is a lord who doesn't... Who, he is Mount, what they thought Mountjoy was, right? He's independently wealthy who can do whatever he wants. But he chooses to be... A, he has these different covers. He can... He, he's like a... He doesn't... Ha, he Because he's independently wealthy, he can literally put on any costume he wants and play that part to whatever degree he wants. Mm -hmm. And if he wanted yes. to stop being a detective, he could. And so those things kind of mirror each other. And yes. found it. Okay, so he gets the idea, and he sits down, and it says, Fired with excitement, he hurled himself at his desk, yeah. snatched a, scrib a scribbling block, and had written the word WIFFLE in capitals an inch high when Miss Rossiter arrived with the message that Mr. Parker urgently requested Mr. Braden to ring him up on the Whitehall number. Lord Peter Whimsey was so intimately in the skin of Mr. Daith Braden that he said, damn, loudly and heartily. Hmm. So then that's okay. the last Go ahead, go ahead. Well, you, you guys, are, are, it sounds a little bit like um, you're saying that his attraction to whiffling round Britain is more 
an attraction that's born of his kind of um, sleuthing nature or his problem-solving nature. And do you see it also as he's actually um, becoming enticed by the actual field, by advertising itself, by this constant appeal to the masses? Is he... um, well, I think kind of like, falling off his perch as a lord. Well, I think like Sayers herself, as Angelina was alluding to, there's an ambivalence about the letters. There's an allure, but all this, there's also a cynicism about it. And I think he is drawn, like it's he he's he's discouraged, he's disappointed when the call comes in that kind of brings him back to real life, air quotes real life, the, which is the crime, right? Because he's enjoying the process of the advertising the problem solving. And I think he's, I think it's the problem solving mm-hmm. that appeals to him. Cause he's a person that solves problems. That's mm-hmm. what he, and he's what, using his mind. And I think that he really, really likes being useful. Mm. And I think that for a while, at least he is enjoying that people don't know he's a Lord. And you have that very interesting scene when Pim says he's going to fire him. Yeah. He's like, then, yeah, okay, go ahead. And he's, yeah, he <laughs> says, go ahead. And he's getting all cocky. And, and so when he, when he doesn't know that, it's Lord Peter. He's treated a very different way, as we saw immediately yeah. when Lord Peter says, sure, go ahead. But uh, be sure when you call the police to ask for Mr. Parker and tell him that it's about Lord Peter Whimsy. And then Pim just completely changes. Yeah. right? Because, oh, oh, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. Why didn't you tell me? And mm. So, I mean, and uh, the Marxist wouldn't like that, of course. He uses his advantage. Right. Well, but he, but he, has he doesn't. To. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't want to. Right. He's backed into it a little bit, and it feels a little bit at times like he's not that good of an undercover player because he keeps getting backed into situations where he has to, like, reveal who he is. True, yeah. Like, that's the third time that that's happened to him with Pim, with Diane, and um, made the major at the party. And Well, in that case, I guess he kind of just lies about it and says he has a twin, which is like, right? can we we all do that when we get mistaken identity? I do have a twin, several. (laughs) (laughs) They have Facebook accounts with my name on it. So So listen, do you guys, when he, I want to go back to what Angelina just referenced. Um, When he kind of plays the aristocrat card, tell him it's Lord Peter Whimsy. um, It it, it reminded me of this week, I was reading Cicero with our students at Gutenberg. At the beginning of On Duty, Cicero, which is written to Cicero's son from Cicero. Cicero's telling his son, listen, um, I'm a man of great accomplishment in uh, Rome. I have held public office. Many people have been dependent upon me. My responsibilities are significant. You know, you too will be inheriting a great situation. And my students were kind of chuckling at it like, oh, man, he's so... I don't think they were complaining that he was full of himself they were just kind of complaining a little bit that he was setting himself up to be like the sugar daddy of the republic or something like that i don't know but i i didn't have that big of a problem with it um because cicero was so clearly citing his accomplishments and prestige um in an attempt to say that his goal is to be of service to the people of Rome. I appreciated that. Um, So when Lord Peter Whimsy 
kind of plays the aristocrat card like Cicero did. Did you guys have a problem with it? Well, I didn't have a problem with it just because I, I've run into this scenario a lot in the literature I read, and I've thought a lot about it. But I think it's very hard, one, as Americans to understand it, and I think it's very hard as moderns to understand it. Because you read, you read any of these books, say, late Victorian through, through the early modern period, and you will notice in how many detective stories especially how reluctant the police are to question members of the aristocracy. Uh-huh. Even to drag them in and ask them questions, they they are extremely reluctant, apologetic. Sometimes the, arist the aristocrat just straight up refuses, and the police goes along with it. Um, I mean, that taps into some very old like feudalism stuff because the police, as an independent un unit, is a, is a new idea. Whereas a you know a long time ago, the aristocrats, the feudal lord, would have been the source of justice. The police, the judge, all of that. And so you had a lot of you know where exactly are the lines? Do do the right. police have a have a right to question this? And, of course, as modern Americans, we're like, that's nonsense. Justice is blind. Who cares if he's a lord or not? If you suspect him, go for it, right? But there were just lots of lines of authority going back centuries and centuries about who exactly is in charge here. You see that in a lot of Bertie Wooster novels, too. We talked about that um, when we covered P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, you know, the aristocrats treating the police like they're buffoons and they don't have yes. the right to question them. <clears throat> have you guys seen The Crown? Yes. Oh, I like that show. Have you no. seen that, Tim, on Netflix? No. Oh, you need – no, don't watch it if you're just going to pull another Stranger Things on me. I like but, it. <laughs> it. It's about Queen Elizabeth, like how she became queen and the first years of her reign. I guess they'll do more episodes. I'm Each season will cover 10 years of her reign. Oh, really? Oh. I'm pretty confident that many of our listeners have watched this given the demographics – yeah, yeah. And, and the interest. The Marxist, Marxist demographics. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Who they are, love, they're really into the royal family. They love the Marxist strain yeah. of, of the crown. <laughs> right. so, so one of the things that's in the crown is the central theme of um, that the crown has to be there for the people because the people want it to mean something. Like even if the crown doesn't have as much power as it used to, like yes. because of parliament and all that and the and – the, um, Prime Minister. Prime Minister and all that. I was going to say the Commissioner. I've been reading too many, too many like... Batman? With too, yeah, too many like crime stories. Uh, Tony Blair, the Commissioner of England. The Commissioner, yeah. Um, <laughs> Theresa May, Commissioner X. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was going to say, yeah, I know Tony Blair is not the Prime Minister right now, just to be clear. I only know about Theresa May because of my son. <laughs> but, um, so, but one of the themes of that is even if the Crown doesn't have the same kind of power... Is it does there, it, it's as a as a symbol. It's still very meaningful to the people right. of, uh, of England, and in a way, the show is kind of representative of that. Because I've heard critics say, "Well, why do we have to have another show about why about another rich royal family?" Right? Like, why is that something that has to be there? We can make shows about so many other things, but I think that kind of is like speaking to the whole point of the show that that those kind of stories are meaningful to people because because of what they're symbolic of. Absolutely, and, yes. and like, and a, and a Lord Peter or a Bertie Wooster or, you know, a Sir P.G. Woodhouse or whatever it is. These these things are symbolic, though they are, mean something to the culture. Like, yes. they're the culture is built around and held up by those kind of symbols, um, and that's of course modern Europe right now is dealing with that. What that what's that going to mean moving forward? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, when you forget about the, when those things don't mean anything, your your culture, your society can't help but change. Mm -hmm. Now we don't have to deal with that here in America because we were kind of against that from the first place in the first place. 
Um, and so I think it makes it hard for us to understand. But those same kind of things seem to be at play here. There's this, there's this symbolically, the fact that he's a Lord means something, but what should it mean and, and how much should it mean? Yes, yes. And I think Americans automatically look at the aristocracy as a place of unfair privilege. And what the mm-hmm. crown does that's so interesting is it doesn't take that perspective at all and shows the aristocracy as a place of incredible duty and moral responsibility that weighs very heavy on anyone who takes it seriously. Yeah, and the, cynic says, and the cynic says, well, they've got money and all that kind of stuff, right? But that's like saying a superhero has power. But their choices are just as limited, you see, in this show as, yeah. as a poor person. Yeah, like Elizabeth, it talks, shows how Elizabeth had no education to speak of other that's than right. like learning the Constitution right. and how that limits her ability to to rule to interact with the, with the men around her and it limits your love choices i mean yeah. that, study history to know that yeah 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 well and, yeah and, her uncle abdicated right so. and yeah i can't wait to see how they deal with the diana charles years oh yeah yeah was her it was elizabeth's lack of education because she was female no because she was a monarch so she was trained as a monarch and not given a broader education yeah. so then she she discovers that when she you know, assumes the throne. She knows the constitution very well, which serves her in certain circumstances. It's hugely important and beneficial. But then she goes into a room with Winston Churchill, say, or whoever else. And this is a very well-educated, you know, well-read, well-spoken, obviously, mm-hmm. you know, all this stuff about Winston Churchill. She, she doesn't feel like she can hang intellectually. Wow. Even though she's naturally very intelligent. She just doesn't have the knowledge to hang. Yeah. Um, but, so yeah, it limits those choices, and, and and you kind of, you kind of get a hint of that in this book, where he's like, he, he's this independently wealthy person, right? Who's who's finding things to do with himself. Yeah. So he his choices are so limited. They're limited, but they're not limited, right? Right. They're like, just limited in a different way. Right. Than ours right. would be. So he can do whatever he wants. But he can't sort get a of. job. Yeah. Right. Lord Peter Whimsey could never have worked at Pym's publicity. Right. It has to be someone else. Right. It could because right. the symbolism makes demands of him. Right. And that's why he can't let anybody know who he is. Not just because he's the famous detective, but because no one was going to open up and be chummy with Lord Peter. He's not mm-hmm. undercover just because he's hiding from a criminal. Yes. He's undercover. To be accepted into to, that world. Yeah, because he, otherwise yeah. he can't be a part of that society. That's a the great culture, point. Culture wouldn't allow him to be. Right. I don't know where we're going to go with this conversation. I don't either, but it's, but it's interesting. very interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. This is the kind of thing where, like, early in the show, you guys used to make fun of me because I'd be like, interesting. <laughs> See, but now I have a face to go with that <laughs> comment. <laughs> I realize it's not a hidden insult. This is where I'd say, that's really interesting. And then I'd cry and away then, from the microphone. And then Tim, Tim <laughs> say something now to wrap this all up and make it sound smart. Or we'd have to find some kind of a segue, right? Um this is one of the things, honestly, that fascinates me so much about books that deal with the aristocracy. You see in Pride and Prejudice as well. I'm fascinated with the sense of moral responsibility that they have for yeah. people under them, which is not the way that Americans think. And I always wonder if we have lost something in our culture because of that. Um, you know, who is morally responsible for us? Just us, right? Huh. And, that, and now we've tried to replace that with the government. But that's not a person. But, but it's, right. it's, we're doing the same thing, we though, are. right? We've replaced our ruling class, but without a sense of moral responsibility. Right. We'd, I think I yeah. think that's such a great point. Again, like at Gutenberg, we're in the middle of studying the Roman era, the Republic and the Empire, and the Roman era is marked probably more than anything by the kind of social structure that is the pater familia, and the more wealthy that the pater is in the overall social scene. 
That just makes me think of a brother where I know I was thinking the same thing too. <laughs> have you seen that movie, Tim? I have, but I don't remember that reference. He, He's the George, paterfamilias. He re- refers to himself as that. Oh, George he does? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm the paterfamilias. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, go so, on. So, the lead, so, Rome is basically this really dense network of client-patron connections. So, if you're a client, read, you're a poor person. You wake up in the morning, first thing you do is you dump your chamber pot in the sewer, and then you dash over to your patron in the hopes that your patron's family did not finish all of the meal that they were eating last night, and he's got some leftovers from you. Okay, so now look at it from the patron side. The patron's standing in society was was really contingent upon him taking care of his clients. He felt responsibility to take care of them. And if he didn't take care of them, I don't know that he'd ever be completely shunned among other patrons, among other aristocrats, but certainly they would they would say, come on, man. Cornelius, you're not doing your duty. You're not following through on the, the social expectations of being a wealthy person with, with clients. So... I don't mean to jump in, but do you think that what's going, perhaps what's going on is Lord Peter feels like he's fulfilling an obligation to watch out for people by becoming Ooh. a detective? Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, well, we're, that's obviously a jump, and I'm reading into it. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to think more about it. But you know, I, it's as you're talking, Tim, and I've you know I've spent enough time studying the Middle Ages to know that there was definitely, although it was abused at times, no question. Um, there was definitely a sense of, of moral responsibility and duty that the feudal lord had. But it's interesting to me as you're talking that I'm thinking, man, how much has Marxism influenced us that we automatically presume that relationship was adversarial and, Absolutely, and, and, negative, and negative toward the peasant, right? That Absolutely. We, we assume they could not be getting anything good out of it. Yeah. You know, I, that point rings really true for me. We, we read Marx and Engels. It's at Gutenberg. And there, the critique is so, so powerful. Just the economic critique that basically the lords of industry are able to amass wealth and fortune. And by amassing wealth and fortune, they're able to amass more wealth and fortune. And if you're shut out of that as a worker, you have very little recourse that puts aside the the bigger question of does Marxism communism provide a viable alternative, right? You know, and that's to me where it just breaks down. But anyway, what's so powerful about Marxism slash communism is the critique, and you're right. The critique is almost entirely based on an adversarial relationship, and I think we're getting deep into history now. But I think that. The adversarial relationship, I actually do think, was heightened because of the Industrial Revolution. Well, yes. I was, okay, so I, I was, was just going to say. I was thinking the same. I think David and I yeah. were about to jump on the microphone when you said industry, lords of industry. Yeah, so when you think about some, you, one of you two mentioned the idea that the lords would serve mm-hmm. their people, and it makes me think of that. I'm gonna. This is going to be controversial. That very mediocre show, Downton Abbey. Um, 
<laughs> I was thinking of I was thinking of that very excellent show Downton Abbey. Um, oh yeah, you agree thing. on something? You've redeemed yourself about no. That show that show jumped the shark. <laughs> jumped the shark. Um, I actually liked the first bit, but then it jumped the shark. It may have, but um, but you know, I was thinking about how that whatever his name is, the lord of that the show. Lord. You'd see that the whole family felt this obligation to yes, care for I the people in, in the town. That. And, um, but there's a big difference between that kind of uh, service for your community and what we now think of as... Yes, yes. Like charity. Like mm-hmm. what, like a Rockefeller or something like that. If there's any Rockefellers listening, no offense. But, um... But it's, yeah, it's not... There's not a relationship for the money, right? You're right. just giving... It to some Car- organization. Yeah. You give it to a college. You give it to a library. You've got Carnegie or Rockefeller. Yeah. And I don't know what the, what's the word. Not charity, but... Um, an endowment or yeah, something. Yeah, an endowment. I mean, that's that's a, there's a big difference between that kind of care for your right. the world you know, around right. you. Yes. And, and the, little Joe that grew up down the road. And right. I want to see him do well. And, what you, and, and for you, you, you get this vague sense of like rich people will give... Like real, I'm talking really rich people. Sure. The professional athlete who makes hundreds of millions, or the billionaire in- inventor, or business owner, or whatever, who, they'll give money back to their hometown or whatever, mm-hmm. or their college. But that's that. That again, that's a very different thing it than is. the Lord who feels a responsibility for the life and death, mm-hmm. for the actual well-being of every person who lives in the town that they're and probably knows their faces even if he doesn't know their names he probably knows their faces and even if it's even if we're talking about the people who are the lord's primary caretakers his butler um he know they're they're lower class i mean they're not aristocrats but his hiring and firing of them is not done from some perch where he does not have a relationship with them. He's got a relationship with them. They're helping him. They're making his meals for him. They're helping him get dressed in the morning. Well, you know, I think it hinges on what you say, lords of industry, right? They're not lords. They're not members of the aristocracy. Mm -hmm. They're, They're the ruling class, but without any of the sense of duty and responsibility because a member of the aristocracy from birth is to be raised with that sense of the responsibility they owe to the people under them. A captain of industry has not been raised that way. Right. Right? Instead, instead, he's the other way. He's probably, you know, picked himself up from his own bootstraps and is very, like, ruggedly individualistic and anybody can make anything of themselves that they want to because, look, I did. And this, mm-hmm. is the, this is why it's always such a tragedy when the firstborn dies and the secondborn has to take over, like, the crown because they were not raised to bear the weight of the crown. It, it, and they deal with that actually in the crown because Elizabeth was not in the line. She was not supposed to do that. It's a second and, well, son. Well, nor was, nor was right, her, nor her, was bro- her father. Yeah. So, you know, he also was not raised. Henry VIII was not raised to bear that crown. Arthur was, and Arthur dies, and now Henry's thrust. I mean, it's a big deal because you have, you, you, that's cultivated from Man, birth. would history have been different if Arthur oh, hadn't died? Hugely eh? different, hugely mm. different. And Henry VIII actually, he struggled. You can see him struggling. He was not raised. He's second sons. Come on. They're not raised for that. They're the playboys. Always. They always are. They always are. Even right now. If William, there's such a difference between William and Harry in the royal family right now. If William were to die and Harry became king, that would that would not be. Queen Elizabeth's never going to die. So she it's not might gonna, not. None of them are ever going to be Don't king. Don't you like, feel sorry for Charles? He's going to have like the world's shortest reign. <laughs> well, I mean, 22 minutes and 37 seconds was the I mean, reign of King Charles. I mean, William McKinley was president for like a month. True, so. true. Um, you know, there's a, there's a Christian organization 
Harrison. In Atlanta. Um, yeah, it was not McKinley. Who was it? William Henry Harrison. Oh. Not, no wonder. No wonder we had trouble yeah. remembering his name. Yeah. He got sick on his inauguration speech, right? That's what they say. It's not he true, died. though. Oh. I just learned something about this. For, that's for another show and another Ooh. day, though. Go Man, ahead, Tim. Busting out the American presidential history knowledge. <laughs> go, go, go off with what you were going to say. <laughs> there's a there's a Christian organization in Atlanta. Um, the Falcons. That we call the Atlanta Falcons. <laughs> that's, a, that's a charity. That's a charity group. <laughs> it's funny that you say charity because their whole thing. I supported them for a long time when I was living in Atlanta because they tried to take a very different approach, and I think they've been largely successful at getting Christians out of the um, charity mindset. They've kind of expressed that their whole mission is to get Christians out of the charity mindset and get them back into the neighbor mindset. Hmm. So rather than think of, like, what good works could I do for the poor? I know it begins and ends with charity. Charity, I mean, I'm talking like in a modern context. When we hear the word charity, you think writing a check, putting a soup can in a box that will be delivered to people that you will never meet. You'll never see the people that receive this check. So this organization in Atlanta, they would move into really impoverished neighborhoods and they would repopulate it with Christians who are like, yep, I'm going to move in and my neighbors are going to be the people that have lived in this really pretty rough neighborhood. And then the organization would help build the infrastructure around that neighborhood and to get it really thriving. And I thought, this is such a fundamentally different way of viewing um, service. It's not charity-based, giving from on high to down low but it lowers that, it minimizes as much as possible that difference between on high and down low by re-neighboring neighborhoods. Hmm. And I think that that's kind of like going back to kind of that pre-industrial expectation that we've been describing the last 10 minutes that I think that the Lord on Downton Abbey seems to have for the people under his care that the patrons in Rome would have for their clients, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and he struggles so much in that show with the idea of the bottom line, right? Because the independently wealthy, like a Lord Peter or whatever, who doesn't have to worry constantly about uh, margins and profits, uh-huh. can think about things differently. Like you, th- you think about the people who your money is going to or the purposes of your money in a different way, I think. Whereas, <clears throat> it, you know, if, you're, uh, if your whole you know, existence is based on maximizing profits and minimizing costs and all that kind of stuff. Then you naturally begin to think about how your money is used in a different way and where it's going to go and the, the people who are responsible for it and all that kind of stuff. Like they become, right. it becomes part of an equation rather than a being about yeah. a being well, about like, a neighbor. Like my resp- like we talk about the captains of industry being being accountable to shareholders, but that is not the same thing. Yeah. As being accountable to the people. Yeah, who a are neighbor there. and a shareholder are not the same yeah, thing. It's not. They're not the same thing. It's but exactly it's, it's right. It's interesting that we've sort of we've we've keep replacing all of these categories, but we remove the responsibility. Yeah. Oh, how do you? What do you mean, Angelina? Well, same thing. Like, 
lords of industry versus members of the aristocracy. Like we have a ruling class, but they have no sense of responsibility to us. And we know that businesses lie regularly to their shareholders, right? They don't have a sense. Mm. They have a financial responsibility to not be fired by the shareholders who might, you know, revolt if they were unhappy with profits, but they don't have a moral responsibility to them. So I like what David's saying. A shareholder is not a neighbor. A shareholder yeah. is not a neighbor. Now, it makes sense that we'd be talking about all this if we were reading Jaber Crow or Wendell Berry still. No, that's but what is this, what, what, what does this have to do with these chapters in... Um, I mean, I know what it has to do. I know why we got here. But um, we've gone for 45 minutes, and we yeah, probably should touch on a few things. We really need to get back to this story. Uh, um, <laughs> one of the difficulties... Well, go ahead, go ahead. One of the... I mean, I brought up the whole conversation because it just seemed to me that these middle parts of the book Either the book is making a greater emphasis in highlighting it or me, the slow reader, is finally catching on to it being such an emphasis. This this difference between Lord Peter and everybody at the advertising agency. Well, and interestingly, the people at the advertising agency, in a sense, almost view themselves as of another class to the people who they're selling to. Yes. Like they are condescending <laughs> – like those get those silly women to actually take their smoking seriously. And <laughs> like, there's a, there's a certain sense that, you know, I don't know if you, I don't know if I would say that they have to be that way to think Like you have to feel condescending towards a person to manipulate them to buy something. Right. Mm. So if your advertising is pure manipulation, you, you're, you are inherently viewing people. Mm-hmm. In a condescending way. Well, you're using them too, right? Well, yeah. You're and you're well, manipulation. What, David? No, I was just going to kind of talk about the idea of manipulation, but um, one of the difficulties of uh, of a book like this, I was telling Angelina beforehand, is there's not you can't spend a lot of time talking about like should a character have done this, this, and this because so much of a mystery book is collecting of data, right? collecting yes. of information, observing things, and then it begins to unfold as you go. And so we kind of have to avoid, you know, we could start trying to put things together and start guessing about who we think did what. Um, in some ways, a mystery book is a good book to read the whole thing mm-hmm. and then just talk about yeah, it. one right. conversation about the different parts of it. Um, but what characters or what scenes especially stood out for each of you in these chapters? Tim, I'll ask you that first. Oh, David. Kind of a, we only have I'm about, so ill-prepared to answer right, that look, question. While you think, I'll talk. We only have about 15 minutes or so, you know, 15, 20 minutes left. So we should – I want to make sure we cover at least some of these things. And that's, I think there's, this is a book of – a collection of really interesting scenes. If, if we can't talk about anything else, we can talk about that. Okay, so I might not be answering exactly the question you asked, but I think you have to, no, have to expect really. that with me. Uh, <laughs> on the Facebook page, we had the best discussion about the presence of evil in this book. And – There seemed to be general agreement that Dorothy Sayers presents evil in a way that is not intoxicating. And that is very hard, right? There is something kind of sexy about the seedy underbelly. We got a lot of movies like that. But here we have the detective not being tempted by the femme fatale. He he thinks she's sad, right? And he pities her. He's not attracted to her. He's not he's not sucked into the seedy underbelly because of her. She's sad. You get the sense that her days are numbered. Uh, she's in a very destructive relationship with Milligan that you don't think is going to end very well. Um, 
it's very, very, C.S. Lewis says it's very hard to make virtue lovely, right? Instead, it usually comes across as boring and simple and naive. So that's very hard by itself. But I'm struck by how she, Dorothy Sayers is, is, she's describing evil in a way that it's not appealing. Uh, you know. And that's a feat. It is a feat. I think it's a feat. I think in a lot of, look, in a lot of modern movies, the villain is way cooler sexier gets the girls has the nice cars i mean he's just a more interesting character than the hero so very often this is why we end up with the the postmodern hero who's really kind of a almost a bad guy himself and you ask questions like what's good <laughs> right well it's one of the i think one of the benefits you know what we don't know yet is who the bad guy is mm-hmm. and so we don't that's true right so far our our the stakes the tension the enemy is the unknown mm-hmm so we know someone's out there, but we don't know who it is. And so that's that's the benefit of a story like this. In a lot of stories, your villain has to be appealing. He has to feel like a real character and in some way be appealing for you, for the stakes to be there. You know, mm-hmm. even if he's pure evil, he has to be interesting in some way. And I think that's the a, the real challenge in storytelling, especially storytelling in which there's a real conflict between two characters, is that you have to find a way to make both of them equally interesting for that conflict to actually feel mm-hmm. consequential. Yeah, and that's hard. I mean, Lewis talks about how it's so easy to make a villain an interesting character because we live in that mind ourselves. I mean, hmm. all we have to do is look into our own heart to figure out all the yeah. things that make evil attractive. It's so much harder to make goodness attractive. And I mean, one person on the Facebook page even kind of saw that scene of the Harlequin in, in the tree above um, Diane de Momeray as really symbolic, that Lord Peter is above her. He refuses to come down to her level. You know, he's, mm. he's raising her up, but she's not dragging him down. And I feel like that's a kind of an archetype in a lot of these stories is, is the villain going to turn bad? I mean, is the hero going to turn bad? Is he going to get sucked in? Shout out to whoever made that observation. Yeah, I don't remember who it was. I'm sorry, but that was very, very good. If you want to go, if, if every listener wants. Tag want, yourself. Yeah, go, uh, go on there, find that comment on the Facebook page, and everyone shower that person with credit. Light yeah. it up. A million likes. <laughs> don't you guys think, I mean, isn't there something not just from a craft standpoint, but from an overall moral standpoint about making the bad guy as appealing, powerful, and intelligent as possible. I mean, here, I'm going to play the Lord, the, the, the John Milton card. I mean, John Milton is famously known. For making his, the devil in Paradise Lost more appealing than the hero, Jesus. And so people even wondered, which kind of seems a little bit silly, if John Milton was like a closet Satanist or something like that. Maybe not a closet Satanist, but he preferred the devil in some way. Putting aside that whole historical question, I think that part of... Well, don't we all in some way? (laughs) Yeah. That was a theological comment. Well done, David. (laughs) To which I will add nothing more. (laughs) Part of of the task of making a great hero is having an adversary that's worthy of overcoming. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I always think, right? I always think this is a a kind of a cheap uh, illusion, but I love the bad guy in Die Hard. Do you guys remember the movie Die Hard with Bruce Willis? Of course. Yeah, come on, man. What's the guy... um, the bad guy in it's, that it's is Alan delicious. It's, awesome. it's Alan, it's Alan Rickman. Rickman. He's, He's amazing. So the good. 
And you think at one point Alan Rickman kind of he kind of gets cornered by Bruce Willis, and you're like, "Wow, Bruce Willis has figured him out." And Alan Rickman pulls this great. He changes his German accent, and he just sounds like a normal American guy. And it makes Bruce Willis think that he's one of the hostages. It's brilliant, right? And it makes you res- it makes you realize how hard it's going to be for Bruce Willis to win this game because our bad guy is so powerful. Hans Gruber. That's uh, who you're talking Hans about. Gruber. Hans Gruber. But you're so, so right, Tim. So the challenge then is I've got to make my adversary equal, right? It has yes. to be a real challenge, but how do I do that without making everybody like the villain more than the good guy? Well, and so yes. in a mystery story where you don't know who it is, the, the villain is lurking, but they're not front and center all the time. And so, again, it's the, the idea of the unknown that is, you know, your enemy. Do you think she accomplished in this book, mm. creating um, the tension necessary to keep a story like this going. I'm not... I thought the tension ramped up in this section. What'd you think, Tim? I thought it increased in this section. You have the... the I'd getting... love to ask that question again, David, later in the pod... I mean, maybe two episodes from now. We don't have two... We don't have that many chapters left. <laughs> we have two more... We have two more podcasts on this, don't we? Well, we have five chapters left and one short, so we'll probably do one more on the chapters, and then we could do a recap one. Okay. okay. That's probably the best idea. Um, we could do. You know what we should do? Let's make the one after the week, next week a question and answer podcast where our listeners can send questions oh, to us yes. and we'll respond. I love, I love it. That. So we're gonna. So that means we would finish next. We would finish with the reading and then Q and A after that. So we'll finish the yeah. We'll finish it. We'll finish the readings next week and then the podcast after that. Send us questions on Facebook or to me via my email, David at com, and we'll go through some of those and we'll respond to them. Some of them we'll do rapid fire. Some of them we'll do in more detail. So send us questions and we'll respond to them. I love that. Um, send us your theories and we will um, we'll, we will respond to them. So do you, so you think, you guys think the tension is there? I do. You don't? No, I'm not. I think I do. The train, I think the train thing really ramps it up. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of following. I, be, I just finished reading Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Which is one of maybe the best spy <laughs> It's novels. great. And it's the whole story is they're trying to figure out who the mole is in the British Secret Service. And really, it's just a guy reading files and then interviewing people. And they're talking about their experiences. But it's uh, despite that, it's a page turner. Um, and so the tension is there, even though nothing is really happening. And I was thinking how mm. similar these two books are you in some are, ways. because there's a mole at Pimp's publicity, yeah. right? Somebody yep. is not who they seem. Yeah, and there's um, there's just this idea of every now and then there's, the, you, there's someone following somebody. In this, we're finally getting some, you know, someone gets pushed in, on, into the train, gets run over by the train, and just kind of like they fell down the stairs. There's probably more deaths in this than there is in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, really? which is probably the most famous wow. spy novel of all time yeah um, but i was thinking about the similarities there but how it's it's in tinker taylor soldier spy there's this bad guy who is maybe what is this this russian spy is named carla and he's just kind of in the background the whole time other than maybe one paragraph something like that maybe one paragraph maybe a couple pages huh. and but this character lingers as our main characters everywhere and so you know that out there is an adversary that is constantly kind of on whimsy's periphery. Right. And like at any time yeah. you can strike and break his collarbone. Right. Yeah. Or could push someone. So like each first someone gets their collarbone broken, then someone gets pushed under the train. And then, you know, there's the 
in theory that means the next big thing is going to happen but um but of course as we've said there's more than just it's more about than just the whodunit yeah i mean what do you make of the scene when the pregnant woman shows up i mean is there anything more going on than just trying to throw suspicion on armstrong we know he's got a lot of cash tall boy yeah Yeah. tall boy sorry i keep getting tall boy and armstrong mixed up is tall boy do you think he's really short I wonder. I wonder. Like I just imagine him as a really, belly. I imagine him as a really short, like bald guy. Cheated on his pregnant wife. I mean, we know we're gonna find that despicable. Yeah, and then he's sort of like, it happens to everybody, right? I'm, I'm okay. I don't. I have- mean, she was having a baby. What was I supposed to do? That was his response. <laughs> classy. Keep it classy, tall boy. Yeah, yeah. yeah but exactly. so I mean, there is that, and there's multiple scenes throughout the book where we're learning different things about different people. This. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, Lord Peter even says to Pim, do you, does anybody have extra cash? I mean, we know Tallboy does, so it can't be him. Yeah. It's too obvious. Uh, but then again, maybe there's going to be a twist where the obvious one is you dismiss it and then you come back. Maybe. In, in Tinker Taylor, they actually say that. It's like, does, it's always, first you dismiss the person who's the most obvious, and then you come back to it and realize it's probably the person who's most obvious. And speaking of that kind of self-reflective formula, I, I loved when she made the comment. Um, Say Lord Peter, yeah, Lord Peter makes the comment in the in the story about uh, you don't like detective novels where the detective turns out to be the villain. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Which, um, yeah, when when you get characters who get on the edge of that, it really upsets people. Yes, well, like, the whole unreliable narrator too, right? Yeah. Yeah, Timmy, there. Oh, what happened? I am. Oh, there okay. he is. So I had to mute it because there was a there was a car alarm going off in the parking lot, so I ah, muted for a second. Very good. So I have one little piece of information I want to close with here. This is really interesting, and I want to hear what you guys think of this. We have had lots of debates about how you pronounce names <laughs> related to this show. Um, I'm, but, I'm pretty sure it's Peter. Lord, <laughs> Lord. Laird. Well, if you're Scottish, the Laird. Um, but so one of the things we've talked about is how you pronounce. Uh, is it Dieth Braden, Death Braden, Deeth Braden, and so forth, right? So Matt Bianco, I'm going to give him credit for this one. All right, Matty B. He put me onto this. So he points out that in Greek, the word dathomen, which if you take it and make it into, you know, like our letters, take it out of the Greek and make it our letters, it would be spelled D-E-A-T-H-O-M-E-N. Oh. So dathomen. In Greek, that is the word for let us pray. So the omen... You know, suffix at the end is let us. So death, D-E-A-T-H, the, that, those letters in Greek, that word is, is um, however you pronounce it, is pray or some version of that. That is awesome. So in Greek, it would probably be pronounced, Matt says, something like uh, deith or deith or something like that, deith. Um, I don't know exactly. I don't know that Greek well enough to remember. I mean, I took a couple courses, but, you know. <laughs> That makes me obviously the most well knowledgeable obviously, Greek person. Obviously, also you can write Bible commentaries now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but as Matt said in his text to me, I asked him to send it to write it down for me. He sent a text, and at the end, he says, "Of course, you guys aren't speaking Greek, so whatevs." Exactly. Um, but that's... And considering what Dorothy said about Latin pronunciation, like really, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Well, it said. If she said that about Latin, then it doesn't matter how we pronounce her name. She can't. That's a True. double standard. That's exactly right. Um, because there were actual rules for Latin. <laughs> but that makes so much sense. It helps me to understand how on earth that became a family name. But so you would think that someone as knowledgeable about languages as Dorothy Sayers sure. would not, would know that. She would, she she would, would not miss that. that. So I think that's a real, that'd be a really interesting thing to think about. The, the idea in this book in particular, 
he's using the middle he's name using the middle name in a way that he doesn't in, if i'm not mistaken <laughs> right, in no. the other books he's mostly lord win lord yeah. peter right but i mean I, his name is said a few times yeah because I, I knew who he was but there's an, a real emphasis yeah. on and he makes jokes about how it's pronounced yeah. specifically in these chapters actually mm-hmm. so i i think we should keep an eye on this that idea and see if there's a way in which that idea of well, prayer. prayer is that kind of like an act of contemplation it's introspective well and i guess lord pym prays upon him to help him out yeah solving the problem and keeping his you know i, I mean we could stretch this in a lot of different ways but it's at least at least worth noting and it's totally keeping an worth eye on noting yeah I, I can't believe that anything about his name is accidental yeah i mean she's a classicist the name of something is so important absolutely point, yeah um, Maddie Bianco and even Peter, right? I mean, Peter is the is the disciple who kind of wanders. Uh huh, uh huh. Yeah, John's like the oldest, and Peter's like the second born. Oh yeah, because he's the beloved, right? John right. is the beloved disciple, right? And he wanders and he struggles. Hmm. And whimsy, she definitely plays on that, right? The family coat of arms. Oh, it's a pun on whimsy. Like, oh, I'm going to get it wrong, and everyone's going to jump on me on the Facebook page, so I'm not going to say it, but it's like <laughs> something like being carried away on your whimsy they, she, is a pun. Hey, you should tell us about that. Beginning of next podcast, we should tell us about that. I said research it, the whimsy Research coat of arms. Seriously. Okay, I will. I will. That'd be fun. Yeah. She goes into that. Just in have a book. listener do it. Just have... <laughs> <laughs> I actually could call some of you out by name now who have distinguished yourselves as the Dorothy Sayers experts that I'm terrified to write something wrong or say something wrong. The, the Dorothy Sayers Close Reads fan club. I'm telling you. They're, they're like the censor board. Ah, uh, Angelina, you got that wrong. Actually, in 1922 on a Friday <laughs> in February, she said this. Oh, my bad. You probably you probably should just stop listening. <laughs> stop reading the Facebook page. And... Um, just kidding. Our next book needs to be really obscure that maybe, maybe it hasn't even been published yet. Like I just want <laughs> by, an un- oh, yeah. by an unknown author, maybe something you wrote yourself, David, like we could just really, <laughs> we'll just say it was anonymous. anonymous. I can't take that pressure. <laughs> so, um, well, speaking of the Facebook page, uh, head over to Facebook if you haven't yet and, um, join the face, join that conversation over there. There's multiple hundreds of you on there now i don't know the exact number but 415 oh nice nice so yeah join that if you're listening and uh want to it's a lively group man who are clearly very well read yeah very true um that's very intimidating i wish i hadn't have known that (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah join us over there Um, also if you want to you can still subscribe to just the close reads feed um that's out there if you want to just get close reads instead of all of our other shows um, if you haven't subscribed to the other shows, but you do want to get all of that, you can subscribe to the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. You can find both of those things on iTunes or on Stitcher. And Angelina, just a quick reminder, you have a class coming up with about the taming of the shrew. Yes. What are the dates of that again? Uh, March 13th through 17th. 13th through 17th. And that's uh, five days on yes. Shakespeare's taming of the shrew. Yes. And for those who didn't listen to another show, one sentence on what the the topic of that is going to be like we're going to try to unravel the problem that is taming of the shrew okay oh okay so another another mystery another mystery yes another mystery i will be lady beatrice (laughs) (laughs) well uh tim any final thoughts no final thoughts david i have 
have a final we're round, thought. We're, we're coming around the bend. Angelina. I have cover. a final thought. This is this is it. When I'm when I'm at my house, the way that I imagine David's face looking during the show is very different. Now I know that he's actually smiling, animated, and having a good time. Oh good. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm actually on my iPhone just playing Scrabble, words with friends most of the time. Well, you see, I'm always laughing hysterically <laughs> into the microphone, and I never hear David laugh, and now I know it's because when he laughs, he moves the microphone away from <laughs> no, his mouth. I, I do, yes. I <laughs> He's do. caused, I'm like, look at, no wonder I can never hear him having fun. He moves the microphone. <laughs> Why don't you let us hear your laugh, David? <laughs> you also can't hear because you're laughing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I got a joking text from Graham during the show. I'm two offices over and I can hear Angelina laughing. <laughs> so much for soundproof. Like we're at a soundproof studio. I oh, have yet to quote, meet Angelina soundproof, proof, okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I took that as a challenge, David. Well, <laughs> well, yeah, she heard the word soundproof and she's like, I'll show you guys. Yeah, 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 exactly. Well, okay, so again, a reminder, we will do one more, one more episode covering the final chapters of chapter 17 through 21 of murder must advertise and then after that we will do a Q&A where we answer listener questions so again my email is david at cerciinstitute.com you can send me questions there or you can post them on the facebook page um if you post them on the facebook page they might get washed away in the storm of everyone else's questions well just tag us though we'll see yeah you can tag them actually yeah. put like a maybe like hashtag q a or something like yeah that. that's we'll good that. or close reads q a put that hashtag on there and that'll put them all in one place for us and we'll go through that um we'll pull that up and we'll we'll credit you for the question and um if we like it we'll especially credit we you. may or may not pronounce your name correctly no guarantees there <laughs> we'll probably purpose like for example katie barons B e h r e n s. She posted on the Gut- on the Gutenberg on the Close Reads Facebook page, and she's already asked a question. Kind of the, the similarities between advertising and drugs, and we have yet to respond. Oh, to that's her. another layer right there, right? Whew. Yeah, that'd be a fun one to talk about. Right, well, Katie, you gotta hashtag that. Well, we'll answer Katya Burns' question. And uh, uh, wait, what was the name again? Just Kate, kidding. Kate, yeah, I don't Just know. Kidding. I heard Katie. Katie Barons, is that what you said? Katie Barons, yeah. P E H R E N S. She officially is now Katya Burns for the close reads. Nice You Russianized her name, Katya. My sister's name is Katarina, and she would go by Katie, and my dad would call her Katya. So that's in my that's in my head. Okay, so I guess that's it for this episode. Anything else we need to say? I think we're good. I think we're good. Yeah, I think we're good. All right, Tim, All right, you guys. Tim, we mourn along with you. I hope that by now I'm, I'm wearing black right now. David can attest to this. <laughs> I'm wearing black and red falcon colors. We're actually wearing black and red falcon color headphones. That's I right. Mean, totally with you in spirit. So, uh, Thank you. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. This has been another episode of Close Reads on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. For Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, I'm David Kern. We'll talk to you next time.